Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 36 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is 1 Kings chapters 20 through 22 and 2 Kings chapters 1 through 2. And this biblical text is supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online or at skousen2000.com. If you prefer to listen, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found on audible.com. Today, we cover chapter 14, The Last Days of Elijah. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! My class in the Book of Mormon did so well, I had them draw a map and put 25 major cities in location. Right on. Right on. Where's Gid? Where's Gid? You know where it is. It's below Mulek and above Omner over on the eastern seacoast, you know. Moroni, south wilderness, right against the seashore, remember? Nephiah, halfway over to the Sidon River. How about Zeezrom? How about Manti? Cumani? Antipera? Ammonihah? Judea? It's just great when you have all those in your mind because you keep running across them, you see, and the person who doesn't take the time to memorize them is caught like a person who never gets his times tables quite memorized. And so he comes along nine times nine. Runs out of toes and fingers. It's very baffling. Nine times nine. What is it? <laughs> now, let's see what you can do with the, um, the Bible map. <clears throat> What's the name of that city right there? Text on the other side. What's it called? Ramsey's up out here. What's it called? Memphis. Or... Or what's the Egyptian name? That's the modern Greek name. How about Nephi? Nephi. There's a city right there down in the desert that was settled by Abraham. Just about. Beersheba. Beersheba. Bathsheba was a girl. Beersheba. Beersheba was a place. Okay. Now right up here was the capital of the tribe of Judah. What's it called? Tribe of Judah. Tribe of Judah. Hebron. 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 Up here, seven miles south of Jerusalem, is a city called the city of David. Bethlehem. Seven miles, of course. Then we come to the city of the Jebusites. Jebusalem. Jerusalem. What's the city down here, right against the river? Jericho. What's the name of the plain between Jericho and the river? Somebody said it a minute ago. Not quite. 3,000 years. They crossed the river and they, Joshua had them all settled down on the plains of Gilgal. It gets away from us, doesn't it? Gilgal. What's the name of that city? What's the name of that city? What's the name of that city? Capital of Judah. City of David. Okay, now we got one right up here, right in the tops of the mountains, right there. 
What's it called? Not quite. Now this is the capital of the northern ten tribes before any other capital was selected. Now called Nablus. Okay, seven miles up there was a, Jeroboam made another capital. What did he call that? Tirsa. And then in due time, um, Ahab moved over to the other one about seven miles west. What's this called? Samaria. Okay. What are these mountains called right here, looking down on Jezreel Valley, where Saul was killed? The mountains of, mountains of Gilboa. You've got two A students in the class. Mountains of Gilboa. Gilboa. Oh, right there, look, looking down on Jezreel Valley. Okay. What's this mountain called? Carmel. 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 We usually call it. Uh, there's a city located right here, a modern famous city. Anybody know what it is? Haifa. Haifa. H-A-I-F-A. And down here is a famous city right there, which is the other famous city and uh, rapidly becoming the largest city in the Middle East. What's it called? Tel Aviv. And next to it is a famous ancient seaport. What's it called? Joppa. Joppa. Joppa, Tel Aviv. And right up here is a famous city named after Julius Caesar. Built by Herod in honor of uh, Caesar. What's it called? What's it called? Caesarea. That's easy. Caesarea. Okay. Tel Aviv. Caesarea. Haifa. Haifa. Uh, there's a famous town right there. What's it called? What's it called? You sure? Nazareth. Nazareth. Right there, right in the tops of those mountains. See, there's a big valley in between the mountains. They break right here. You have a Esdrilon Valley here and Jezreel Valley here. It's the same valley, actually, but they have the two ends of it, and they call them by the different names. Then you hit these mountains, which go right on up into Lebanon, where all the uh, cedars of Lebanon grow, and uh, that's uh, the mountains in which we have uh, Nazareth located. Now I want you to notice something. This sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains. There are mountains over here that rise up about uh, 2,500 feet. And these rise not so high, but there are mountains. And then down in the valley you have the sea. Guess how deep that valley is? That's this one. Oh, that's about right. This is 600 feet below sea level. And it stays below sea level until it gets down to the Dead Sea, which is 1,300 feet below sea level. Does that help? What's the name of that city right there? Jericho. What's the name of the plains in between Jericho and the river? Ugal. Sure, it all comes back to you. What was this again? And uh, what's the capital of Judah? Hebron. And up here, the city of David. And then the capital. And... Uh, Shechem. And then within 10 miles, we have the Kirza over here, Samaria. What's that mountain called? What's this? What's that? Caesarea, with the old seaport of Joppa. Nice, it'll all come back now. It's good to keep that map in mind. There's a famous city over here in the desert. 
about that far. But what's it called? Damascus. Damascus. Very good. Okay, now, I want you to turn to page, um, on page 335, just so I'm, I don't miss the point. I may have missed it in lecture, and I want to be sure that you got the point. On page 335, you'll remember that the people of Israel lost the Melchizedek priesthood. Nobody could have it, and only the tribe of Levi could have the Aaronic priesthood. However, we now know that all the prophets in the Old Testament held what priesthood? Melchizedek. Many of them became isolated from those who held the keys to the priesthood, and therefore, who ordained them? Now, will you remember that? Now, that's important to remember. They were never, they didn't have hands laid on their heads at all. They were ordained by voice. That happened to Ezekiel. Probably happened to Alma the Younger. It, um, uh, so the early part of Joseph Smith's ministry was out without priesthood laying on of hands, but he had authority to do what he did, to go and look at the plates and so forth. Now, you, you need to get used to this because we're so indoctrinated with the fact that you and I cannot confer the priesthood by voice. We have to actually lay on hands to confer priesthood. But what, what are you conferring? What's priesthood? The, the authority of God delegated to man. So when God says, rise up, Ezekiel, and go out among the people and teach them, does he have authority? <laughs> Just want to be sure that we, we kept that clear in mind. Now sometimes after the person would come in contact with the presiding brethren, he would then be blessed by them, a sort of a confirmation. Just wanted to be sure you understood that doctrine. Well, he didn't have any authority to go for and preach anything, but he, he was commanded to do something, wasn't he? But he actually had to be ordained and set apart, and, and the apostles, it says, ordained him. Any question now on that doctrine? Uh, you see, when, when the keys are in uh, the, the eastern hemisphere, and Jesus raised up uh, his priesthood over on this hemisphere, they had authority, but it was limited. And he appointed 12 disciples. Who are they subject to? The twelve apostles over there, without their even knowing them, you see. But in the judgment, uh, who judges the Nephites? The twelve disciples judge them first, but then they're subject to judgment by the quorum of the twelve from the Eastern Hemisphere. So all of this is for the sake of order. Every time that there is chaos and disorder, God will inject the element of order in his own way. You get Alma with the lost Nephites down um, south of the narrow strip of wilderness, Without priesthood, no opportunity to obtain priesthood, nobody to baptize him. And we have no record of when he received the priesthood. But he says he did what he was told to do. Who baptized him? He wasn't baptized like you were baptized. Who baptized him? Did you miss that in Book of Mormon? You don't remember who baptized him? Baptized himself. Now, what made that acceptable to the Lord? The Lord told him to do it. It makes it very acceptable to the Lord when he tells you to do it. Now, do you know of anybody that has been baptized? Excuse me, they received the priesthood before they were baptized. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Okay. Both received the priesthood before they are baptized. In other words, when God is injecting a new dispensation and a new program into an, an, an element of chaos to restore his order, he very often will do it differently than he will do it after the order is established. 
And some people get excited and say, well, you can't do that because <laughs> yeah, it's kosher. I mean, you just can't do that. When you stop to think about it, God can do anything that doesn't violate justice, right? Okay, I just want to be sure that doctrine is understood. Now, let's see how fast I can go to see if I can begin to commence to start to catch up with you. <clears throat> you remember that when... Yes. To restore the keys. Right. They did. They're resurrected beings. Very much in the flesh. One of them was translated. John was translated. Peter and James were both resurrected. Elijah, when he came, was resurrected. Noah was resurrected. Moses was resurrected. So they were all in the flesh. Okay. Now, when Moses got the priesthood, who did he get it from? You have to kind of think back, don't you, for a moment. Who, who did he get it from? Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, here's the good one. Where did Jethro get it from? He is not of Israel. He is a Midianite. And that means he's a descendant of whom? Ishmael? He got it from Abraham through his great ancestor, who was a brother of Ishmael. What was his name? How about Midian? That's an easy way to remember it. <clears throat> now, who is Midian's mother? So we're all scholars in the Bible. Keturah. You see, when um, you remember that Abraham died um, at the age of 100 and what? 175. And his wife had died when he was 100 and um, how about 37? That pretty good? 137? Okay. Now, he subsequently married. Between his age of 137 and 175, he had six sons. Married to Keturah. One of them is uh, Midian whose descendants were Midianites. And one of them got the priesthood, was separated away from Abraham at the time, <clears throat> and therefore got the priesthood all by himself. So who ordained him? The 84th section says. God ordained Isaiah. Jethro received the priesthood back to Isaiah, who, who was ordained by God and blessed by Abraham. So when he was able to get back in con contact with Abraham, then he was blessed by Abraham, but he was ordained by God. That's exciting when you kind of trace all these ramifications. And you have to go over and over it again. When I ask you these questions, I, I just do it to kind of provoke your, your mind so that you'll uh, ask yourself the same thing sometimes. Okay. Now, I spent about four hours yesterday with um, the president of one of our large corporations. And they're thinking very seriously now of... Um, a coast-to-coast -coast television series on the spectacular days of the Bible. Half-hour program, once a week, probably Sunday afternoon, coast-to-coast, -coast, either by region or by or by coast-to-coast or coast -coast all the way. And they're really excited about it. They think that the public has had so much violence, murder, riots, drugs... <laughs> that it's time that they are ready for a little Bible. That's the way they figured. And um, so, anyway, they called, they asked me to come in and see them, I did. And I said, well, now, <clears throat> the only way I could present the Bible would be from the frame of reference of my own background and 
And they said, that's, that's fine. Present it just like it's in the books. In the three books. And I said, well, uh, and that, that I would be happy to do. But, of course, they would know that that was um, the Bible as seen through the eyes of uh, the LDS people. They said, that's fine. Uh, if, you, if you're put on as a professor at Brigham Young University, everyone will understand that. So all you need to do is tell them that you're going to give them the best that you've been able to find from all the sources that are available to you. That's all there is to it. Just present it. And I said, well, that, that'd be great. Uh, when, when do you want to start this? And they think maybe in the fall. So I don't know how it's going to work out, but it's kind of exciting. Because actually, you see, that we have some marvelous things to share with our, our neighbors and friends, really. We have the whole first chapter of Genesis that was lost. We have that. Telling how Moses got uh, Genesis. That's exciting. We know all of that material has been lost, all the rest of the Christian world. We ought to be getting it out to them. Then I, I said to them, well, it might not turn out to be popular. Uh, you might go down to a 3% rating or something. They said, we thought about that possibility. Maybe the people wouldn't react favorably. But even if we got 3%, even if we got 1%, We'd keep going. It would be a one-year contract with all the stations. We'd go through for one year and put it on film so that it could be shown over and over. And we think that it could be made, it could institutionalize. It would grow. And we'd want written material to go out and, and we'd have a team to help get the slides. we get clips from some of the religious pictures where you think that it would be appropriate to show a little, a little scene from one of, the, um, one of the regular pictures that shows certain personalities and characters, whatever you felt you needed to liven it up. And, and we get a lot of colored stills and so forth. And we think it would be a great program. I thought, that would be a great program. From the top housetops. Preach the gospel from the housetops. So I, I had a hard time sleeping last night. So let me see if I can catch up here with you. <clears throat> I did about ten scripts last night in my mind. <laughs> Now, this marvelous experience of, of Elijah going, trying to go down to uh, Mount Sinai to die and being reprimanded by the Lord and told to go back, uh, that uh, he was going to replace Ben-Hadad, a real reprobate Syrian, up at, up at, at Damascus, and he's going to replace him um, with um, Zael. I have to keep looking that one up. Hazael. He was going to replace Ahab with, uh, did you pick that one up? Jehu. And he says, you haven't even ordained your successor. Get back in the field. I got 7,000 out there that never bowed the knee to Baal. You have? Yeah. I 7,000. Shepherd, get back to your sheep. So he shrugged off the death wish. And headed back down the valley. And he went right up into the territory where he, he himself lived. And that's where Elisha lived. It's kind of interesting. The two men apparently were well acquainted. Because as he came up, uh, we, have, we don't have Elijah even greeting him. We imagine that Elisha probably said, um, Shalom Rabboni or something, you know. But we just have Elijah just taking off his robe and putting it across the shoulders of Elisha. He knew what that meant. He's the apprentice prophet. That's like having Brother uh, Harold Billy come up and put the robe on you and walk away. Boy, what a shock. And here you are with 12 plows. So Elijah's walked down the road, and he, he got way down the road before Elisha said, I've got to do something about this. And he, he rushed, and he said, 
Could I please go back and at least tell him goodbye, you know, have a little goodbye party or something? And wasn't Elijah's response interesting? Yeah, he says, well, it's, not, it's no affair of mine. I didn't call you. Isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah. We don't know. You don't have this uh, referred to on any other occasion that I can remember. Just this once. But it seems to have been customary, at least at this time. And so they went off together and tried to find all these 7,000, get them organized, and they began ordaining prophets, and they had a school of the prophets revived. And during Elisha's day, they have school of the prophets in Jericho, and they have uh, uh, one up at Bethel and so forth. So they really did find some of the 7,000. And one of these prophets, whose name isn't given, for the sake of the righteous, came to Ahab during a period of siege and um, let him know that for the sake of the righteous, God was going to let him win the battle that day. And Ahab said, well, that's, that's nice. Who, who, who lead them? And who did the prophet say? Yeah, thou art the man. And so Ahab had the courage to get up and get on his horse and get out there. And he caught the Ben-Hadad and the Syrians in a very serious predicament. They were all drinking themselves drunk at noon celebrating the great victory. The next thing they knew, Ahab and his men were on them and, the, and uh, they barely were able to get off and escape. And so they go, uh, Ahab goes back and congratulates him, and, and the prophet says, look, uh, <laughs> get ready for the next round. Just don't sit around here. It's going to be bigger next time. And sure enough, it was. Now, the first battle is fought at Samaria. And the next one fought at Aphek, which is up here in the highlands above the Sea of Galilee, at 2,500 feet, and uh, a little way west of the sea. Uh, and um, at Aphek, they had the big battle. And uh, who won? Who won that battle? The uh, Israelites won. Syrians dead all over the place. What was it, 100,000, something like that? Uh, They really did smear them. Now, this was just about the time that um, after this particular battle that Ahab, like a spoiled child, went down to uh, uh, the summer palace there and he looked over the vineyard and plantation of his neighbor whose name was uh, Naboth and uh, he wanted it. Naboth said, well, I can't sell it. Why did he say he couldn't sell it? Part of their family inheritance that you're not supposed to sell under Israelitish law. And so Ahab is very unhappy, went back to Samaria, went to bed and pouted. Then his ever-loving wife Jezebel came and asked him what the problem was. When she found out about it, she said, we can do something about that. And she involved the whole city of Jezreel in on the plot, that is, the leaders of Jezreel in on the plot, had them have a wonderful celebration honoring Naboth for the outstanding citizen that he was, and right in the midst of it have a couple of false witnesses rise up, sons of Belial, and say, why do you honor this man? He is guilty of having what? Blasphemed and betrayed the king? And another one rises up and says, yes, I can testify that that's the case. Two witnesses, all you need? And so there was reaction. What kind of reaction? Rocks. And who defended Naboth? His sons. What happened to them? Yeah, they were stoned to death too. And then they said, let their bodies lie. And in those days they had these hungry packs of dogs. And if a calf or a cow, anything got down, well, they, they were just on it, just tear it to pieces. They do the same thing to a human body. They just tore those bodies apart in no time. They were never buried. And so... Um, the word went back to, 
to the king at Samaria. The land can be expropriated by you now because its owners are all dead. So he jubilantly says to Jehu, one of his generals, in your chariot, Jehu, I'll get in mine. He got another one of his generals, and they were coming down this high road that we've traveled a number of times, and about right there, an old man out there in the road. Who is it? Who? Elijah. Okay. And he pulls, Ahab pulls up his horses, and he says, Hast thou found me, O my enemy? Elijah says, I have found thee. Thus saith the Lord God, Hast thou killed and also taken possession of the fruits of the slaying, in other words? Verily in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. Out of my way, old man. Crack the whip and away he went. All right, now, the next interesting event is that the people over in um, Assyria, which is between the Tigris and Euphrates River, what are these people called right in here? Syrians. What are these people called between the Assyrians? Assyrians, okay. They broke loose. They're terribly brutal. They're terribly brutal people. Uh, they're the kind that uh, pack off your knuckles and let them grow. They're healed, you know, and they pack off the next knuckle and let them grow. And the hand, and the elbow, and then they start on the other hand. It's called the living death. They impale people on poles. They cut little slits here and rip the skin right off, right down to the feet. It's called flaying. They rip out tongues. They crop off ears. That's the Syrians. And you see, it's not very long here, right after Elisha, that Jonah's going to visit them and tell them that they got Sodom, that they're going to go down like Sodom and Gomorrah um, here very shortly. They don't repent. Forty days, and they're going to get it. That's Jonah's message. See, that's going to come very shortly. Those Assyrians broke loose and came over here, scared the wits out of all these people. Egypt scared. Judah's scared. The ten tribes are scared. Now, Lebanon is scared, so what do they do when they're scared? They all combine together. What about Syria? Oh, yes, everybody combines against Assyria. And they fought them to a standstill. And while the king, we now have found the actual stone on which he claims a victory, but he didn't get a victory, really. He didn't get any tribute out of all these people. Uh, it was a fight to the standstill, we now know. Now, after he was gone, it was very definite, uh, very obvious, uh, that these people had to continue sticking together. Uh, so we have a, a, a very strange alliance developing between Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, and this wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel up here. Now this man is ostensibly a righteous king down here in Judah. But because of this fear, we think, he felt driven into an alliance. And the fruits of the alliance, the first fruits of the alliance, was going over here and getting Raboth Gilead. Now Gilead is the ter territory over here. They call it Rehoboth or Rehoboth Gilead, the eastern territory. Now that city should have belonged to Samaria, to Israelite, because after the battle of Aphek, then Hadad solicitously asked Ahab to forgive him. And Ahab went ahead and forgave him when the Lord had told him to, to reduce that enemy so it wouldn't keep coming down and destroying Israel and the few righteous that were left there. He didn't, he made him a friend. And all that Ben-Hadad had to do to save his life was to promise that he'd give back the cities his father had taken from Israel, including Ramoth-Gilead. Then he didn't give them back. 
And uh, so um, now it's time for Ahab to take Ramoth Gilead, and so he asks the king of the Jews to come up and help him. And Jehoshaphat, what a name, Jehoshaphat went up, and he committed himself three ways. He betrothed his crown prince to whom? Athaliah, the, the daughter of Jezebel. <laughs> Man. He also con uh, um, uh, agreed to commit the Jewish troops, and he also agreed to trade, a trade agreement. All three ways he agreed. So the two kings are up there, and Jehoshaphat said, I'm, I'm, I want to know what the word of the Lord is on this battle before we go to Ramoth. Are we going to come out all right? Oh, he said, yeah, we have prophets everywhere. Oh, yes, we'll bring them in, have them talk. So here come all these apostate priests, some of them emasculated, others all covered in scars. They got all kinds of marks on them, paint and stuff, and a couple of them are wearing big horns, and they're roaring around like uh, Ephraim is supposed to do. You know, the, the bull was the symbol of Ephraim. And they got their horns rooting around, and yeah, Ahab's going to really root out uh, the Syrians from Ramoth Gilead. And uh, Josephat says... Um, it wouldn't happen to have a prophet of Jehovah handy. Yeah, Ahab said, we got one in jail. But we just happen to have one. He said, I don't like to listen to him because he always prophesies evil concerning me, though. <clears throat> but he says, if, if you really want to hear him, we'll go get him. So his name was Micaiah. And Micaiah was brought out of prison. And the messenger who was bringing him said, now look, son, <clears throat> when you get over there, we've got, the, we got a little unification going here. I suggest you don't rock the boat. Don't, don't, don't make a nuisance out of yourself like you usually do. I mean, go along. Give the king the blessing. He's just about to go into war. It's a very serious thing. Give him your blessing. And Micaiah says, I will say, what? Everything God tells me to say is like I always have. And the messenger knew this would be bad. But anyway, <clears throat> when they arrive there, why, sure enough, here are these false prophets, and they're rooting around, and as Micaiah stands there, persecuted and imprisoned, probably emaciated from the usual incarceration that they suffered, he watched these well-fed, phony priests. Oh, Ahab, go to Ramoth. You will be delivered, and you will be victorious, etc. So finally, Ahab said to Micaiah, Now, what is the word? And, and he had a sense of humor. And Micaiah says, um, Oh, go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver thee from the hand of the king. Go on up, go on up, go on up. Ahab looked at him and he says, Now, Micaiah, how many times have I told you, don't tell me anything but that which is true in the name of the Lord. Don't any more of this sarcasm. Uh, and uh, so Micaiah says, All right, I'll tell you. I saw Israel on the hills fleeing like sheep without a shepherd. Ahab, you go up to this war, you shall die. And Ahab turned to Jehoshaphat and said, See, I told you. you know, always, told, always told you bad things about me. It's kind of a fantastic thing. So they put him back in prison. Now, I do not understand Jehoshaphat at this time at all. I don't understand why he didn't use his good offices, why he didn't intervene, but it wasn't his jurisdiction. Maybe he just thought, well, you leave, leave him in the hands of the Lord. And anyway, as Micaiah was going, he said, if thou returnest in peace without being killed, God was not speaking through me. And he turned to the people and he said, I'd make a note of that if I were you. And they took him back off into prison. 
That's all we know about Micaiah. But it shows you the most of the prophets were being killed, you see. They weren't even surviving. But this one had been thrown in prison. Well, all of you know what happened to Ahab. In fact, he almost got um, Jehoshaphat killed, didn't he? He said, why don't you go out in your royal robes? and You kind of lead out. That'll be great. You, you get out there in front of the army and lead out. And, oh, Jehoshaphat said, that'd be fine. Boy, somebody really needed to tutor him. And, uh, so he gets out there, and he almost got himself killed because immediately, of course, the Syrians concentrated on him. And they get right up to him before they suddenly realize it isn't Ahab. And they'd been told to be sure and get Ahab. And they said, see, they didn't have any idea who he was. But they, they realized that it was a... Um, uh, probably a disguise, specifically designed to lead them away from the real Ahab. That's, that was their assumption. So they went out looking for Ahab. They never did find him, did they? But they let, just let a blast of arrows go out generally, hoping one would get him, and it did, didn't it? Killed him. But he stood up in the chariot all day, lest uh, his warriors stop fighting, so that they thought they had a leader. And finally the blood collected in the bottom of his chariot, and toward the afternoon he collapsed and, and the chariot was washed and the dogs licked the blood of Ahab and prophecy was fulfilled well um, then that's most of what I wanted you to get out of that chapter um, we have um, Ahaziah taking the place of um, of his father Ahab he only rules for a short time he went down to try and put down a Moabite rebellion, which was down here, and he went home. They couldn't succeed. Misha, the king down here, held him to a standstill, so he went back to Samaria to rest. And um, that's where he fell out of the, um, fell through the lattice, didn't he? And he, he really got some internal injuries. In fact, he wasn't sure he was ever going to make it. So that's when he sent um, the messengers down to the plain to find out from the heathen familiar spirits and liver readers and whatever they had down there, whether or not he was going to make it. And the Lord told Elijah to intercept the messengers and tell him that he was going to die. So the messengers went back and told Ahaziah. And uh, Ahaziah said, who told you this terrible message? Well, he said he was kind of an old man and he had kind of a woolen uh, breech cloth and so forth and a lot, of, a lot of hair. Oh, he said, that's Elijah take the army down there and kill him. He's not going to be allowed to curse me this way. Kill him. So the first one went down. They found Elijah, all right, sitting up on the little hill. Would he have killed him? Oh, yeah, he would have killed him. What happened to them? All 50. Fire from heaven. All down there. Somebody saw it and took the word back, the shepherds or somebody. So he sent number two. Same thing. Fire from heaven. They sent number three. And this was a smart one. And he said, Elijah... I know what you can do to me. Please come down. <laughs> I don't want to die. Did Elijah go down? Yeah, the Lord said, it's all right, go on down. Go on down. So he went back and he talked to Ahaziah. He went back and talked to him. He says, no, Ahaziah, you're, you're going to die. That's, that's the word of the Lord. And uh, so did he die? All right. And it wasn't too long after that um, that Elijah himself was to go to the other world. It's, it's kind of fascinating how that happened. Elijah is told by the Lord that his mission on life is, uh, in life is finished and that he is um, to be caught up. And he knew somehow that it was not going to be an ordinary death at all. 
And uh, so he decides to make the circuit and tell all the schools of the prophets goodbye. And, of course, he takes Elisha with him. He wasn't going to take Elisha with him, but the uh, Spirit of the Lord whispered, Elisha, your master, it's about all over. You're going to be next. So when Elijah came and said, now I'm going to uh, go and see the brethren over at where? Bethel, maybe, huh? Bethel, um, so you, you stay here and kind of take care of things at Samaria. Why, uh, no, um, no, Elijah says, no, I, I'll be going with you. Somebody's got to be taken care of. Well, Elijah said, all right, come along. So they got down there, and they'd barely arrived, and this school of the prophets got Elisha to the side and said, we just got the word. Your master will be taken. It's just about the end for him. He's going to be taken. And it was interesting how Elisha said, uh, oh, you, you know about this too? Well, keep your peace. Don't tell him. He doesn't know we know. You know, <laughs> that's, It was that kind of, a, of an arrangement. Uh, so then Elijah says, um, now I'm going down to Jericho. I want to tell the brethren goodbye there. So you stay here with the brethren. Oh, no, Elijah said, I'm going. I, I've got to be with you. So they get down to Jericho, and we have the same thing. School of the Prophets has already learned. Through inspiration, Elijah's about to go. So they try to pass the word to Elijah, just a, fr a nice friendly gesture. He, he said, oh, well, okay, so you know, but shh. Keep your peace. Then Elijah says, Now, Elisha, I'm going across Jordan, so you stay here. Elisha says, I'm really going on this one. I'm really going. So, all right, Elijah said, we go. So they go down to the river, and there are 50 of these priests out in the bushes, all watching. And it was worth watching. Because Elijah took off his robe and rolled it up and struck that river. What happened to it? Just when, like when Joshua crossed it. That thing dammed up like it had a plexiglass dam across it. The water spread up back and back of it. And those men walked over on dry land. And then Elijah turned around. That's all right. And all came down again. And as they were walking along, Elisha said, I have one request. What was it? I'd like to have twice the spiritual power that you had. That's quite a request. Elijah said, I don't know whether God will give it to you, but this will be a token. If you are able to see me when I go, that will be a signal to you that God will let you do it. So they got to a certain place. There came the horses and the chariots all on fire, celestial. And all of a sudden, whoosh, it's all gone. And Elisha's standing there with what? Elijah dropped his robe. He picked up the robe. He rolled it up. He went back to that river. This was really a, an empirical test. Did he have the power or didn't he? And he struck the water, back up it went again. He walked across. Fifty prophets all came out of the bushes. What'd you do with the master? We got to go over and look for him. He says, don't go. We insist upon it. They pestered him, pestered him, finally. He said, well, all right, go look. They came back in three days and said, we didn't find him. He said, oh, it's all right. And <laughs> And apparently he subsequently told them, because the word seems to have spread everywhere, that Elijah had been translated. So that right after Elisha healed the pool of water that had been tainted there and was killing everybody and went up, we have all those young men, not children as the Bible is translated, not children, late teenagers, pestering Elisha, who is a young man, and calling him old ball head, ball head. When are you going to go up? You see? 
That really seems to have been the reason for the taint. And so in the name of God, he turned and cursed them. Some she-bears came out and scratched them up real good. Didn't kill any of them, apparently, but really scared the wits out of them. And the word spread through all Israel. Don't make him angry. 